Lord, we thank you um, once again just for the opportunity to gather and to sit underneath your word and to do it with people who we love and who have also been redeemed and called by your name. And God, our prayer today is that as we hear the authoritative, powerful self-expression, God, that we would be changed, that like the people who we will learn about, there would be astonishment and amazement but more than that, there would be service that would come from it. In Christ's name, and we all say, amen. Amen, amen, amen. Oh, yeah, turn to your neighbor and say, what up? Can you, hey, Savs, you can bring me down just a little too, too, too. I'm too powerful this morning. That's why I was feeding back. Sorry, it's all good. Hey, man, it's good to be with you. Um, yesterday, I was somewhere, I can't even remember. Um, I think I was getting my behind whooped in flag football. It is a, a very demoralizing process uh, to realize that your athleticism is diminishing fast, very fastly. And so, but anyway, um, but I had enough time to peek on my phone and to look at my ESPN updates. And I saw for all the Tiger fans that Penny Hardaway has landed his first Top 25 recruit. Oh, no, go to, oh, man, come on. What's up about that? This, what is this? Anyway, um, even if you're not from Memphis, you can uh, feel some of the energy, right? For the past year and a half, you could tell that at least in the athletic sphere, people are uh, bubbling and they're overjoyed. Like Ted is ridiculous. He got a brand new Penny Hardaway tattoo. He'll show you later. It's just crazy, man. I don't even understand that level of excitement. But there is a level of excitement and fanfare, uh, at least for me. I'm dialed in. I want to see See this guy do well. I want to see what it brings to the city. There's energy, right? Um, uh, we, uh, on the radio, they might even refer to it sometimes as penny mania. And so um, I don't know if I'm correct, but my research has told me that the suffix mania kind of originated back in the 60s. And I know we have some people who would understand you were alive in the 60s, but we're not going to point you out. It's all right. It's all right. I'm not even looking at you. I'm not even looking. But it's set around the 60s, if you don't know, the original Backstreet Boys, the original One Direction, uh, and um, what, what's Justin Timberlake group? What was that? NSYNC. The OGs of the boy band was the... The Beatles, baby, the Beatles, right? So these four British boys, they come from across the pond. And, you know, <clears throat> around the mid-60s, as legend would have it, that they were popular over there. But, you know, America was still a little bit undecided on whether or not they were going to like the Beatles. And so around 63, 64 or something, the Beatles come across the pond. And, and their, uh, their publicists and all their marketing team have been doing a lot of work with the radio station. They've been sending singles out and they've been playing them but the really the key moment was the moment when they got on the Ed Sullivan show matter of fact legend has it that they sold 5,000 some tickets for 700 seats it was crazy right but once they did it and they literally broke records I think 47 million viewers and one night watched them perform from that point it was over with they get back across the pond I believe it's Heathrow Airport is that correct right and as they walk off the plane, it's 10,000 people 
can't even get to where they need to go. It got so crazy at some point in Beatlemania that they actually stopped touring at least for a second, right? It was just too wild. What we're about to unpack here today, we've been in Mark 1. We've seen that the king is here, right? He's made his announcement. He's told you what he's about, but now we kind of see him doing his thing thistle. He's out there, baby, and he's doing what he does. And I want to tell you, Penny Mania and Beatlemania don't even compare to what's about to happen to Capernaum. Don't even compare to what's about to happen to Galilee because it gets really wild. But the wildness that we're going to see in the passage today is not based on uh, what may happen. It's not based on clever marketing schemes but it was based on this amazing authority, the likes to which the world had never seen before. And this is what we're going to see as we encounter Jesus's years of popularity. Let's start first. Let's get back to verse 21, if we can. And it says, they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. As we continue to move deeper and deeper into Mark, we're going to see these three distinguishable uh, characteristics about Jesus's ministry that literally just are mind blowing. It's always going to be coming back to his teaching. Right. It's always going to come back to the fact that he has this power over the demonic world that doesn't seem to exist anywhere else. And it's always going to be this authority to be able to heal. And so as we break this passage up, we'll break it up into three parts. We're going to see Jesus's authority demonstrated in his teaching ministry. We're going to see his authority demonstrated over the demonic world. And then we're going to see his authority demonstrated over the body and anatomy and physiology as he heals. Now, what we need to know is not that Jesus is capable of these things. And, you know, for maybe the first century audience, that's what this scripture is put in there for, just to let them know that, yo, man, he can do it. But for us and maybe the readers and Mark's audience, it's not necessarily what he can do, but it's how we react to what he can do. This is what's important for the audience today. How do we respond to the authority of Jesus Christ? Amen, somebody. So Jesus begins his earthly campaign, not at your local Kroger, not at Tiger Stadium, but he begins his earthly campaign of ministry right in the synagogue. You know, while I'm jokey, uh, I want to take a brief second just to um, pause. Can't use the word synagogue two days after a tragedy without coming back to the synagogue and remembering our brothers and sisters who are all made and fashioned in God's image who never should have to endure some heartache like that. So proud that we live in a broken world. It doesn't matter what faith, what creed you are. We do believe you are made in God's image. It doesn't matter though we're theologically obstinate to you. We do believe that you deserve certain inalienable rights, right? The right to live uh, the way in God's harmony in his world, the way that... Um, that you would like to. And so our hearts are heavy this morning with that. And we're thankful that we can gather this morning and we're not worried about that. But I'm also thankful that even as we gather and even if somebody dared to walk in that room and, and try to destroy this, that we have a heavenly home prepared for us. And we'll celebrate it today. That it doesn't matter actually what you do on this side because he already paved the way to make sure it'll be all all right. Amen, somebody. 
So what is a synagogue actually, right? So Jesus starts in a synagogue, but this is where God's people met. This is why this is an ideal setting to begin your ministry and your campaign, right? This is the center of Jewish culture and life. Um, Don't think of it as a a church, because it's not necessarily a church. That's not necessarily how the synagogue function. Uh, Matter of fact, ever since the Babylonian exile, um, where the temple had been decimated, God's people had been removed from it, you could find synagogues all over. Over the place, right? All the Jewish community needed was to have 10 uh, men who were older than 13 to have a quorum and then they could have a synagogue. Now, the synagogue was primarily a teaching institution. They didn't really have a pastor. It's not nobody kind of set up over it. But essentially, there would be a ruler who would facilitate things. And anybody who would like to, uh, uh, to expound upon, to, to exposit, to exegete the Torah, right? You could come that week, that day, and you could do that. You could have an audience, and y'all would discuss Scripture. Now, what would happen, though, as you discuss Scripture, any uh, competent person who understood the Torah, and the Torah simply just meant the first five books of the Bible, which were essential to to God's people, the Jews at that point in time. That was what they would call the Word of God. It was essential to all things life and practice. But what you would do is you come in, and if you were the man on the mic that day, you would wax eloquent, right? But there's one thing that you would not do. You would never come up into the synagogue and say, well, Tim Johnson says, right? If you're Tim Johnson. Is that speaking in third person? Yeah. All right. Thank, thank you. I was paying attention in some classes, some classes, <laughs> right? But you would always have to come in and say, I've heard it said someplace. There is a saying someplace because you never came underneath your own authority. I'm writing papers now again in seminary and it's crazy. I know my, pa- my professors are so frustrated because I come in that mug, I have like, my bibliography would be like this long. I have like 25 sources. I don't never have to use my words. I just tell you what they say. <laughs> MacArthur says, Sproul said, Bobby Warfield says, and if you actually add up all my words, they'd probably be a little paragraph. That's all, I got. that's all I got, G. Let me just tell you what he said, right? And that's what you would come in and do because you know all you're doing is commentating on the word of God, but those aren't your words. So can you imagine the scene one day when you're sitting around, you know you've been to synagogue all the time in the teaching sessions, and you just parked up and you're chilling, and all of a sudden some cats, he don't, he don't come with the normal, yes, I've heard it said, all of a sudden the cat gives up speaking, he says, and I say, oh, no, he did. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. The people said the word was astonished. It's literally characterized, shock, awe. Because ultimately, they're amazed at the fact, wow, he preaches with authority. And that's, that's, that I'm sure his exposition on his own words was flawless. <laughs> we miss it sometimes. He's killing it. Oh, yeah, let me tell you what I meant when I said that. <laughs> it's like, okay, great. But I'm sure they were marveling at that. But they knew also that if someone is coming and they're not using, citing other works, and they're speaking underneath their own authority, are we in the presence of the Messiah? See, that has all types of other implications because this means that we're not just hearing words about God. No, we're hearing and we're watching God's word. I wonder, just in a brief moment of reflection, 
Has it become so mundane and routine? When you come here, the crazy little black guy speak? That you forget that what we're saying is the word of the living God? Or has it just become trite to you? Our prayer is that even though that's not the fullness of how we should respond to God's word, that God's word would still have a special place in our heart. Maybe not like your black grandmama who said, you better not let that Bible touch the ground. (laughs) Not in that way, right? We're not in the business of throwing Bibles on the ground, but we do hold the word of God as something different than Shakespeare. It's something different than just poetry. It is literally God's word. The people were astonished. Now we move forward. Now these people are literally having their mind blown because they're trying to figure out what is literally happening right now. Y'all have those moments like, What is going on right now? So on one side of the room, they're trying to figure out what do we do with this man who's literally saying that he's speaking his words. And then on the other side of the room, all hell is literally breaking loose. Not 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 even plain. This is not allegory. Literally, all hell is breaking loose on the other side of the room. All right. You're not laughing. So you're not with me yet. So read verse 23. (laughs) Read verse 23. What does it say? So immediately after Jesus is doing his thing, and immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. Rachel, I thought you did a great job. I thought you could have overemphasized just a little more, but I thought you did good. (laughs) What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? (laughs) Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. There's literally a demon in in a Bible study, y'all. What would you do? Now, I will tell you, I come from an exorcism, charismatic background. And literally, you've heard some of these stories, but my office would be next to my mom's and uh, very paper thin walls. And, uh, you know, I'd just be typing away, doing my thing. And then all of a sudden, I just hear just this pain and anguish type of cry, just scream, ah! And I'd hear toilets flushing and people running out the door. And I'd make sure i wait till after lunch to even go back in that office. So I'm not even sure what's happening in there, but I don't want no parts of that. All right? I'm going to let you have that. Right? Literally, there is a demon crying out on the other side of the room. Now, whether you believe that or not, um, we do believe we live in a parallel universe. We believe the things that you can't see are probably more real than what you do see. We're not overly superstitious. You have a a cold right now. That's not a demon, okay? You just need some NyQuil and some DayQuil. Work it out. It'll be all right, okay? The devil ain't trying to get you. But we also are not superstitious on the other end that we're savvy enough to know that everything wrong in your life can't be explained away. It's not just a product of your bad choices. That there literally is an enemy who's trying to steal, kill, and destroy you. You better believe it. You better believe it. So we sit kind of in the middle of that. But the first century world certainly sat probably more on the left than they did the right of that. Right? They literally have graveyards where as they dug up skulls and they would see that there's small circular holes that were drilled in the top of the skulls. I would have to ask Blake 
and Lord, you know, how to help me here. But I think the, the process is called trepaning. Maybe they still practice this or not. But the idea was this ancient idea that as people were dealing with habits that people couldn't seem to explain, they thought that they were demon possessed and they would drill the holes so that the demons could escape. This is, they absolutely believe this. And I just, as a word, if you don't really believe in the demon world and, and, and all that type of stuff, and once again, we're not overly superstitious, then you would just have to do a lot of theological work to explain what Jesus was doing here. This story doesn't kind of really make sense if you don't believe that Jesus is warring against demonic forces. So they absolutely believed it. And so what, what would have to happen is um, <clears throat> in the Torah and the Talmud, there's all types of incantations and spells and magical rites that you would have to do and perform to exercise demons or whatever. Jesus, verse 24, I think is where we at. He says, what do you have to demon? He says, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you're the Holy One of God. But Jesus just didn't go to his magic book. He didn't pull out no beads. He didn't start doing hum, boom, boom, boom. He didn't do no dances. He just says, shut up and come on up out of him. The authority and the teaching, who in the heck is this guy? On one side of the room, he's opening up what many, all of us has considered to be the word of God. And he's saying, I say, teaching with authority, and on the other side of the room, he is speaking to literal demons and saying, shut up and come on out of. Who is this man? Let's keep reading. Verse 26, and the unclean spirit did what it had to do, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed wouldn't we? So that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. You can imagine in poor little old Capernaum, this little fishing town on the north side of Galilee, that this is wild, right? I remember um, Kristen and Jeremy will enjoy this, but uh, Mississippi State came and traveled to Mobile to play South Alabama. Now, we were a startup Division I program, I think maybe two or three years in. And um, when Mississippi State came, I think Dak was there, um, but it was kind of the, the beginning of us being established is what I'm trying to say. So anyway, it's Thursday and me and Gina are probably doing some college ministry, campus ministry. Literally, we walk into the Walmart and, uh, hell sake, hell sake. I'm like, what? What's going on here? I didn't even understand what was happening. All of a sudden, Friday, I start seeing all burgundies. Just, and then I see the bulldog banners just flapping up and down the street. I'm like, what is literally happening here? It's Saturday. Poor little old Mobile, the traffic was just log jam everywhere because all of a sudden we got 30,000 Mississippi State fans in our city. We weren't prepared for it. Matter of fact, we were so unprepared, they ran out of waters in early September at halftime in the game. <laughs> 
We wasn't prepared for SEC football in Little Mobile. That's what we weren't ready for. That's a whole nother level. This is a whole nother level, y'all. This is tearing this city up. I can imagine you either had two approaches. If you were in that synagogue that day, you were either the gossip girl who, as soon as you left that mother, you were like, girl, let me tell you what happened. You know little Jethro stay around the corner, the crazy one. Girl, he started walking right. Demons came up out of him. And this man was explaining the Torah, talking about, I said it. It's either you took that approach or you took the approach like many people did and said, holy heck, if this man is healing, get the food, we about to take the knapsack, we about to get your Air Jesus sandals on, we about to, hey, <laughs> let's go to Peter and mama house and let's get in line. If he healing, we in it. Y'all remember, I think it was a couple years ago, somebody started the rumor, maybe around Thanksgiving, around this time, that Zach Randolph was actually paying people's gas and light bills. <laughs> hey, that thing got so wild, they actually had to get on radio saying, hey, Zach is not paying people water bills. Don't come to MLG and W, that is not happening. This is what's happening to poor little Capernaum. And so we pick back up in verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left and she began to serve them. Now I'm not sure whether Jesus was on his way. I'm sure he, in his sovereignty, he knew that uh, Simon's mother-in-law was ill, but I don't know if he was headed there specifically to heal her or whether or not he was just trying to dip set. He was like, yo, it's wild out here. Let me just retreat. I'm not sure. But as soon as they get there, Simon and Andrew quickly said, hey, Jesus, they've been watching him work. They like, you know how it is when you're with your boss. You know, your boss kind of got a little bit of weight to him. You know, you, you wait. You don't use all your axes. You're like, hey, boss, uh, you know, I got a small family project. And I'm just wondering if it might be okay to uh, borrow the company's camera. You know, you wait. You don't ask all at the right time. I'm sure, Simon Andrew, that's kind of how they did it. They're like, hey, boss, you know, since you're over here, you know, Simon, mother-in-law, she's sick now. You might want to handle that. So they, they get in there, and Jesus pretty much does the same thing. We believe that she's suffering from some burning fever. The Talmud would describe it as a burning fever, and they had, once again, another strange kind of incantation or list of spells, things that you're supposed to do. Take a, a, a solid piece of iron, burning iron, tie it to some piece of hair. You're supposed to, on the first day, repeat Exodus 3-2, and then the second day, Exodus 4-5, and then the third day, Exodus 5-6. That's how you got rid of the burning fever. But the king of the cosmos, the creator of the heavens and earths, never too busy, says he lifts her up by the hand and restores her to full health. Isn't that crazy? When the God who has all authority uses it just for you. And your restoration. So 
He's demonstrated this amazing authority through his teaching and, and through the, the power over the demonic world and now through this personal sweet encounter. And now verse 32, that evening at sundown, once again, the town is crazy. It's Sabbath, so they, everybody waited till sundown to start traveling. That evening at sundown, they brought him, all who were sick, all oppressed by demons in the whole city. How many people, y'all? The whole city was gathered together at the door. And look at our sweet Savior. And he healed many who were sick with diseases and cast out many demons. But he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This kind of will, will alley-oop us or, or at least catalyze us into one of the biggest themes and questions in the rest of the gospel. Who is this guy that we're talking about? Who is this Jesus who speaks with authority? Who is this who has the power over the demonic world? Who is this who heals the body? We as readers, we know it because we can see it. They didn't understand it. The only people who know who he really is right now is the demons. We won't get our first human confession. This is a big deal in Mark. The narratives will kind of keep being the same. We'll drive this point home. Who is this Jesus with the authority? We won't get our first human confession until chapter 8. Where Peter's going to say, yeah, you are the Christ. This is called the messianic secret. Put it in your phone, write it down somewhere. As you read through Mark, it'll be a blessing to you. I'm going to read what one commentator says just about the messianic secret. The messianic secret is best understood as Jesus' attempt to define his messiahship on his own terms, which means in light of the cross, he does not wish to proclaim his identity since they all people will inevitably distort it. He calls those he heals to silence, to temper the messianic fervor of the crowds. He silences his own disciples since they remain ignorant, check this out, that his messiahship won't just be a bed of roses, but it will involve suffering. They don't ever seem to get that. And it also is Mark's way to show that Jesus' deeds were so remarkable that actually you couldn't keep them secret if you tried. So why, why the don't tell anybody? It was three things. He just wants to do it his way. You will inevitably distort, you won't, you won't totally understand who I am and you can't properly relay it, so don't say anything yet, is what he's trying to say. And he doesn't want to be attached to the demonic world. He says, hey, if y'all, y'all just start chattering about the Messiah's here, then the timing's going to be off. Slow down just a little bit. But I also want to tell you, don't say anything. It's almost like my backhanded sometimes when I sing a little bit. And maybe I know I hit a couple good notes. It's, oh, Pastor Tim, that was so awesome. Oh, no, not really. <laughs> Jesus can do that. Don't say nothing. I know you want to say something. I know you're going to tell everybody because it was so good that you got to tell everybody, but don't tell nobody. How could I hold this, Jesus? I literally couldn't walk yesterday. I got to share it. Here's where we land the plane. 
who is the man with the authority. Jesus tells us earlier in Mark 1 that the only response to the king being here is to repent and believe. That's it. But we see kind of in the, in, the, in the people who were in the synagogue, how did they react to the authoritative teaching? With awe, shock, and wonder, right? And that's a part of it. That's, that's okay. We should have that type of awe and respect for the word of God. How do the demons respond? The demons sometimes have a little bit of better response than maybe even some of us. James 2.19 says that uh, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe. So we learn a little bit about something from the demonic response that just mere knowledge about and facts about who God is, that's not enough. It's not enough, right? But I love maybe the response that we overlook. It's the sweet mother-in-law. Going back to uh, verse 31 and verse 30. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately told, her about, told him about her. And he came, took her by the hand, lifted her up. The fever left. And what did she do? She began to serve them. Romans 12 says, I beseech you by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices. When Paul gets to 12, it's a therefore kind of step verse, right? It's based on everything that we've unpacked through all of the first 11 chapters of Romans. The fact that you're depraved and none of you are seeking God. Matter of fact, Romans 5, that even while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you and exhibited this kindness. Matter of fact, Romans 9, that said, hey, man, I've chosen some of you and you ought to be doggone grateful. Romans 12 finally says, now in response to all of that, what should we do? Present our bodies. What do you do with the great teacher? What do you do with the one who has power over the demonic world? What do you do with the one who has literally restored some of you to physical health, but those of you who have put your faith in him, he has restored you to spiritual fullness. What do you do in response to that? It's just simple. I think it's like the mother-in-law. You just get up and you say, here's my life. I don't want to know what you know today because even the demons know stuff. I don't want to know that you're amazed by what God does. That's great. You know, gratitude is a little bit different than service too. Sometimes we just limit it. Oh, thank you, God. It's like the man who let me borrow $5. Man, thank you. And you kind of keep moving. But when you serve, you say, man, I'm grateful, but here I am. And I want to offer my services for you. As we get ready to approach the table, it's the ultimate act of service. He gave first. This is what we always have to use as the stimulus. He's not asking us to move first. He's already moved. And that's what the table represents that his body was offered for us, his life for ours. What do we do in response to that?